Hi, Mum. Okay, so apologies are in order for two things. Forgetting your anniversary and also for not recording an, a, a podcast episode for quite some time. We are absolutely finishing this before you get here, though. 100%. So they're gonna, the, the episodes are going to be coming in hard and fast. Um... You could always save them actually and listen to them on the flight, come to think of it. I'm also recording from the studio, i.e. the bed. And I'm not sure if you can hear that, but I'm actually going to put the microphone close to her. But Puss is here. And she's being very loud. Can you hear that? just doing a little face wash now very good okay so yeah um i believe today we're on episode 18 and chapter 21 chapter 21 the city of light in the dark When asked to account for the first time I've spent in Paris, for the time I've spent in Paris, I reach for my carton of ticket stubs and groan beneath its weight. I've been here for more than a year and while I haven't seen the Louvre or the Pantheon, I have seen the Alamo and the bridge of the River Kwai. I haven't made it to Versailles, but I did manage to catch Oklahoma, Brazil and Nashville. Aside from an occasional trip to the flea market, my knowledge of Paris is limited to what I learned from Gigi. When visitors come from the United States, I draw up on little I draw up little itineraries. If we go to the three o'clock operation petticoat, then that should give us enough time to make it across town for the six o'clock screening of it is necessary to save the soldier Ryan. And of course, you'd rather see the four o'clock <coughs> ruggles of Red Gap than the seven o'clock Roman holiday. Me, I'm pretty flexible, so why don't you decide? My guest decision proved that I'm a poor judge of my own character. Ayatollahs are flexible, I am not. Given the choice between four perfectly acceptable movies, the invari they invariably, invariably opt for a walk through the Picasso Museum or a tour of the cathedral, saying, I didn't come all the way to Paris so that I can sit in the dark. They make it sound so bad. Yes, I say, but this is the French dark. It's darker than the dark that we have back at home. In the end, I give them a map and spare sets a spare set of the keys. They see Notre Dame, I see the hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm often told that it's wasteful to live in Paris and spend all my time watching American movies and it's like going to Cairo to eat cheeseburgers. You could do that back at home, people say. But they're wrong. I couldn't live like this in the United States, with very few exceptions. Video killed the American Revival House. If you want to see a Boris Karlov movie, you have to rent it and watch it on a television set. In Paris, it costs as much to rent a movie as it does to go to the theatre. French people enjoy going out and watching the movies on a big screen. And any given week, one has at least 250 pictures to choose from, at least a third, of them, a third of them in English. There are all the recent American releases, along with any old movie you'd ever want to see. On Easter, having learned that the greatest story ever told was sold out, I crossed the street and saw Superfly, the second greatest story ever told. Unless they're for children, all the movies are shown in their original English with French subtitles. Someone might say, get your fat ass out of here before I do something I regret. 
and the screen will will read leave. <laughs> I sometimes wonder I had even bothered with French class. I'm truly delighted to make your acquaintance. I heartily, I heartily thank you for the succulent meal. I have yet to either to use either of these pleasantries. Since moving to Paris, my most often used phrase is one place, please. That's what one says at the box office when ordering a ticket, and I say it quite well. In New York, I'd go to the movies three or four times a week. Here, I've upped it to six or seven, mainly because I'm too lazy to do anything else. Fortunately, going to the movies seems so sudden seems to suddenly qualify as an intellectual accomplishment on a par with reading a book or devoting time to serious thought. It's not that the movies have gotten any more strenuous, it's just that a lot of people are lazy, as I am, and together we've agreed to lower the bar. Circumstances foster my laziness. Within a five o'clock radius of my apartment, there are four first-run multiplexes and a dozen 30 to 50-seat 50, 50 revival house with rotating programmes devoted to obscure and well-known actors, directors and genres. There are the mom-and-pop theatres willing to proceed with the two o'clock showing of The Honeymoon Killers, even if I'm the, the only one in the house. It's as if someone has outfitted this den with a big screen and comfortable chairs. The woman at the box office sells you a ticket, rips it in half and hands you the stub. Inside the theatre, you're warmly greeted by a hostess who examines your stub and tears it just enough to make her presence felt. Somewhere along the line, somewhere decided that this activity is worthy of a tip. So you give the woman some change, even though I've never known why. It's like a mystery, like those big heads on Easter Island or the popularity of the teeny weeny knapsack. I'm so grateful such theatres still exist and that I gladly tip the projectionist as well. Projectionist as well. Like the restaurants with only three tables, I wonder how some of these places manage to stay open. In America, the theatres make most of the money at the concession stand. But here, at, at least in the smaller places, you'll find nothing but an ice cream machine tucked away between the bathroom and the fire exit. The larger theatres offer a bit more, but it's still mainly candy and ice cream sold by a vendor with a tray around his neck. American theatres have begun issuing enormous cardboard trays and it's only mat a matter of time before the marquees read, try our barbecued ribs or complimentary baked potato with every 32 ounce sirloin. When they started selling nachos, I knew the chicken wings wouldn't far be far behind. Today's hot dogs are only clearing the way for tomorrow's hamburgers and there is only a short leap to the distribution of cutlery. I've never considered myself an across-the-globe apologist for the French, but there's a lot to be said for an entire population that never, under any circumstances, talks during the picture. I've sat through Saturday night slasher movies with audiences of teenagers, and even then nobody has said a word. I can't remember the last time I've enjoyed silence in an American theatre. It's hard to believe that our audiences spend the day saying nothing, actually saving their voices for the moment the picture begins. At an average New York screening, I once tapped the shoulder of a man in front of me, interrupting his spot review to ask if he'd planned on talking through the entire movie. Well, yeah, what about it? He said, with this is no trace of shame or apology. It was as if I'd asked if he'd planned to circulate his blood or draw air into his lungs. Gee, why wouldn't I? I moved away from the critic and found myself sitting beside a clairvoyant who loudly predicted the fates of the various characters seen moving their lips up on, on the screen. Next came an elderly couple, constantly convinced that they were missing something. A stranger would knock on the door and they'd ask, Who's he? I wanted to assure them that all their questions would be answered in due time, but I don't believe in talking during movies, so I moved again. 
hoping I might be lucky enough to find a seat between two people who had either fallen asleep or died. At a theatre in Chicago, I once sat beside a man who watched the movie while listening to a Cubs game in his transistor radio. When the usher was called, a sports fan announced that this was a free country and that he wanted to listen to the goddamn game. Is there a law against doing both at once, he asked. Is there a law? Show me the law and I'll turn off my radio. Sitting in Paris and watching my American movies, I think of the man with the transit... How the hell do you pronounce that? Transistor. Transistor. Radio. And feel the the exact opposite of homesick. The camera glides over the critics of my past, capturing the energetic skylines just before they're they're destroyed by the terrorist bomb or advancing alien warship. New York, Chicago, San Francisco. It's like seeing the picture of people I knew I know I would still sleep with if I wanted to. When the high-speed chases and mandatory shootouts become too repetitive, I head over to the revival houses and watch gentler movies in which the couples sleep in separate beds and everyone wears a hat. As my ticket is ripped and I briefly, briefly consider all the constructive things I could be doing, I think of the parks and the restaurants and the pleasantries, I'll never use on the friends I'm failing to make. I think of the great city teeming on the other side of the curtain and then the lights go down and I love Paris. Chapter 22. I pledge allegiance to the bag. One of the drawbacks to living in Paris is that of the people is that often people refer to you as an expatriate, occasionally shortening the word to an even more irritating expat. It is implied that anything that might take you to London or or St Kitts, hang on, it is implied that anything might take you to London or St Kitts. But if you live in Paris, it must be because you hate the United States. What can I say? There may be hands, bands of turncoats secretly plotting to overthrow their former government, but I certainly haven't run, run across them. I guess we don't shop at the same boutiques. The Americans I've befriended don't hate the United States. They simply prefer France for, the reason, for one reason or another. Some of them married French people or came here for work, but none of them viewed the move as a political act. Like me, my American friends are sometimes called upon to defend their country, usually at dinner parties, where everyone's had a bit too much to drink. The United States will have done something to the French that the French don't like, and then people will behave as though it's all my fault. I've always taken off guard when I'm always taken off guard when a hostess accuses me of unfairly taxing her beef. Wait a minute, I think. Did I do that? Whenever my government refuses to sign a treaty or decides to throw its weight around in NATO, I become not an American citizen, but rather America itself. All fifty states in Puerto Rico sitting at the table with gravy on my chin. During Bill Clinton's impeachment hearings, my French teacher would often single me out saying, you Americans, you're all such Puritans. Citizens of Europe and Asia, my fellow class members, would agree with her, while I'd wonder, are we? I'm sure the reputation isn't entirely undeserved, but how prudish can we be when almost everyone I know has engaged in a three-way? I've never thought much about how Americans were viewed overseas until I came to France and I was expected to look and behave in a certain way. You're not supposed to be smoking, my classmates would stay. You're from the United States. Europeans expected me to regularly wash my hands with prepackaged towelettes to automatically reject all unpasteurized dairy products. If I was thin, it must be because I'd recently lost the extra 50 pounds traditionally cushioning the standard American ass. If I was pushy, I was typical, and if I wasn't, I was probably it was probably due to Prozac. <laughs> Where did people get these ideas and how valid are they? 
I asked myself these questions often. After spending nine months in France, I, I returned. Hang on. I asked myself this question when, after spending nine months in France, I returned to the United States for a five-week trip to 20 cities. The plane hadn't even left Paris when the New Yorkers seated beside me turned to ask how much I'd paid for my round-trip ticket. Americans are famous for talking about money and I do everything possible to keep our reputation alive. Guess how much I spent on your birthday present, I ask. Tell me, how much rent do you pay? What did it cost you to have that lung removed? I horrify the French every time I open my mouth. They seem to view such questions as prying or boastful. But to me, they're perfectly normal. You have to talk about something. And money seems to have filled the conversational niche made available when people stopped discussing the Constitutional Convention of 1787. During my five weeks in the United States, I spent a lot of time on planes and waiting around in airports, where the image of the Americans as hard workers was clearly up for grabs. Most passengers were in favour of the stereotype, while the majority of airport employees seemed dead against it. Standing in long lines, I could easily see how we earned our reputation as a friendly and talkative people. Conversations tended to resolve around the incompetence of the person standing behind the cash register or computer terminal. But even when pressed for time, I found most travellers to be tolerant and good-natured, much more willing to laugh than to cause a stink. People expressed the hope that they might catch their plane, that they might leave on time, and that their luggage might eventually join them once they reached their destination. Once considered relentlessly positive, we seem to have substantially lowered our expectations. I thought a lot about American optimism when on a flight from Chicago to San Francisco. I watched one of those video magazines stitched together from a week's worth of soft network news reports. There were the standard just how safe are they and report focusing on chopsticks or cardboard boxes, followed by the latest study proving that people who wear socks to bed are likely to be live five hours longer than the rest of us. Then came a human interest story about the New York City programme designed to expose the homeless or are great works of art. The segment opened with a, gen- a genteel woman standing before a Rembrandt painting and addressing a group of unshaven men dressed in ragged clothing. The woman lectured on the, li- on the play of light and shadow. She addressed the, the emotions provoked by the uh, artist's sombre choice of colours and her eyes glittered as she spoke. Interviewed later, one of the men conceded that the painting was nice, saying, Sure, I liked it okay. Then the camera cut back to the woman who explained that art appreciation was a form of therapy that would hopefully get these men back on their feet. Here was an example of insane optimism coupled with the naive popular belief that a few hours of therapy can cure everything from chronic obesity to a lifetime of poverty. It's always nice to get out of the cold, but I think this woman was fooling herself in believing that these men would prefer a Rembrandt to a couple of Rubens. For all our earnest recycling, America is still seen as terribly wasteful country. It's a stick. Hang on. Ah, Jesus. Someone's calling me and I can't see if this is still recording. I'll just have to hope for the best. It's a stigma we've earned and we're trying to overcome with our own unique blend of guilt and hypocrisy. On the first night of my trip, while brushing my teeth in the bathroom of a $270 night hotel, I noticed a little sign read reading Save the Planet. Okay, I thought, but how? The card reported the amount of water used every year in hotel laundry rooms and suggested in having my sheets and towels changed daily on a daily basis. I was thinking this precious water directly from the cupped hands of a dehydrated child. I noticed there was no similar plea encouraging me to conserve the hot water that came to my $15 pot of room service tea. 
but that apparently was a different kind of water. I found an identical save the planet card on each of my subsequent ho hotel rooms and, I got, and it got on my nerves in no time. I don't mind reusing a towel, but if they're charging me that much for a hotel, I want my sheets changed every day. If I felt like sharing my bed with trillions of dead skin cells, I would have stayed at home or spent the night with friends. I was never the one paying for the room, but still, I resent being made feel guilty for requesting a service an expensive hotel is generally expected to perform. Pandas and rainforests are never mentioned when it comes to the millions of people taking joyrides in their Range Rovers. However, it's little things we're strong-armed into conserving. At a, at a chain coffee bar in San Francisco, I saw a sign near the cream counter that read, Napkins come from trees. Conserve. In case you missed the first sign, there was a second sign, one two feet away, reading, Waste napkins, you waste trees. The cups, of course, are also made of paper, yet no mention of the mighty redwood when you order your $4 coffee. The guilt applies only to those that are bearing, given away for free. Were they... Were they to charge you 10 cents per napkin, you would undoubtedly make them much thinner so that you'd need to waste even more in order to fight back the piping got hot geyser forever spouting from the little hole conveniently located on the lid of your cup. Travelling across the United States, it's easy to see why Americans are often thought of as stupid. At the San Diego Zoo, right near the primate habitats, there's a, disp there's a display featuring half a dozen life-size gorillas made out of bronze. Posted nearby is a sign reading, Caution, Gorilla Statues May Be Hot. Everywhere you turn, the obvious has been stated. Cannon may be loud. Moving sidewalk is about to end. To people who don't run around suing one another, such signs suggest a crippling lack of intelligence. Place bronze statues beneath the California sun and of course they're going to get hot. Cannons are supposed to be loud. That's their claim to fame. Like it or not, the moving sidewalk is bound to end sooner or later. It's hard to explain a country whose motto has become you, you can't claim I didn't warn you. What can you say about the family who was suing the railroad after their drunk son was killed walking on the tracks? Trains don't normally sneak up on people unless they've derailed. You pretty much know where to find them. The young man wasn't deaf or blind. No one had tied him to the tracks, so what was there to sue about? While at last... While at a loss to explain some things, I take great joy in explaining to others. After returning from my trip, I went to my regular place to have my hair cut. They'd given me a shampoo and I was sitting with a towel on my head when Pascal, the shop owner, handed me a popular French gossip magazine featuring a, sto a story on Jodie Foster and her new baby. Pascal, who speaks English, is aped over Jodie Foster and, joins all her movies on, and owns all her movies on videotape. His dream is to frost her tips while asking behind the scenes questions about Summersby. I've been looking at this one photo but there is something that I'm not making out. He pointed to a picture of the actress walking down a California beach with an unidentified friend who held the baby against her chest. A large dog ran just ahead of the women and splashed into the surf. I can see Jodie Foster is holding in one hand a leash but what is she holding in the other hand? I've asked many people but nobody knows for sure. I brought the magazine close to my face and studied it for a moment. Well, I said, she appears to be carrying a plastic bag of dog shit. Go out of here, you nut. He seemed almost angry. Jodie Foster is the biggest star. She won an Academy Award two times, so why would she like to carry a bag that is full of shit? 
No one would do that but a crazy person. He called his four employees. Get over here and listen to what he's saying, this crazy nut. He's trying to communicate why an Academy Award-winning actress might walk down the beach carrying a plastic bag full of dog feces. I got the sort of lump in my throat that other people might get while singing their national anthem. It was the pride one can only feel when far from home and surrounded by a captive audience. You're called upon to explain what undoubtedly the single greatest thing about your country. Well, I said, it goes like this. Okay, we've done well. Two two chapters in this episode. We're going to have to plough plough on in the next couple of weeks. Hope you have a lovely end to your Sunday and a good start to your week. Cannot wait to see you. Chapter 23 Pika Pakatani. This episode of Me Talk Pretty One Day is brought to you by Brunetti's Carlton. It was July, and Hugh and I were t- taking the Paris metro from our neighbourhood to a store where we hoped to buy a good deal of burlap. The store was located on the other side of town, and the trip involved taking one train and then switching to another. During the summer months, a great number of American vacationers can be found riding the metro, and their voices tend to carry. It's something I hadn't noticed until leaving home, but we are loud people. The trumpeting elephants of the human race. Questions, observations, the locations of blisters and rashes, everything is delivered as though it were an announcement. On the first of the two trains I listened to the quartet of college-aged Texans who sat beneath a sign instructing passengers to surrender their folding seats and stand should the the foyer of the train become too crowded. The foyer of the train quickly became too crowded and while the others stood to make room, the young Texans remained seated and raised their voices in order to continue their debate. The topic being, which is a better city, Houston or Paris? It was a hot afternoon and the subject of air conditioning came into play. Houston had it, Paris did not. Houston also had ice cubes, tacos, plenty of free parking and something called a sonic burger. Things were not looking good for Paris, which lost valuable points every time the train stopped to accept more passengers. The crowds packed in, surrounding the seated Texans and reducing them to four disembodied voices. From the far corner of the car, one of them shouted that they were tired and dirty and ready to catch the next plane home. The voice was weary and hopeless, and I I identified completely. It was the same way I'd felt on my last visit to Houston. Hugh and I disembarked to the strains of Texas, our Texas, and boarded our second train where an American couple in their late 40s stood hugging the floor-to-ceiling support pole. There's no sign saying so, but such poles are not considered private. They're put there for everyone's use. You don't treat it like a fireman's pole. Rather, you grasp it with one hand and stand back at a respectable distance. It's not all that difficult to figure out, even if you came from a town without any public transportation. The train left the station, and needing something to hold on to, I wedged my hand between the American couple and grabbed the pole at waist level. The man turned to the woman, saying, P.U., can you smell that? That is pure French, baby. (laughs) He removed one of his hands from the pole and waved it back and forth in front of his face. Yes, indeed, he said. This little froggy is ripe. It took a moment to realise that he was talking about me. The woman wrinkled her nose. 
Golly, Pete, she said, do they all smell this bad? It's pretty typical, the man said. I'm willing to bet that our little friend here hasn't had a bath in a good two weeks. I mean, Jesus Christ, someone should hang a deodorizer around this guy's neck. The woman laughed, saying, you crack me up, Martin. I swear you do. It's a common mistake for vacationing Americans to assume that everyone around them is French and therefore speaks no English whatsoever. These two didn't seem like exceptionally mean people. Back home they would probably have had the decency to whisper. But here they felt free to say whatever they wanted, face to face in a normal tone of voice. It was the same way someone might talk in front of a building or a painting they found particularly unpleasant. An experienced traveller would have told, could have told by looking at my shoes that I wasn't French. And even if I were French, it's not as if English is some mysterious tribal dialect, dialect spoken only by anthropologists and a small population of cannibals. They happen to teach English in schools all over the world. There are no eligibility requirements. Anyone can learn it, even people who reportedly smell bad, despite the fact that they've just taken a bath and are wearing clean clothes. Because they had used the tiresome word froggy and complained about my odour, I, I was now licensed to hate this couple as much as I wanted. This made me happy, as I wanted to hate them from the moment I entered the subway car and seen them hugging the pole. Unleashed by their insults, I was now free to criticise Martin's clothing, the pleated denim shorts, the baseball cap, the t-shirt advertising San Diego Pizza Restaurant. Sunglasses hung from his neck on a fluorescent cable, and the couple's bright new his-and-her sneakers suggested that they may be headed somewhere dressy for dinner. Comfort has its place, but it seems rude to visit another country dressed as if you, you've come to mow its lawns. The man named Martin was in the process of showing the woman what he referred to as my Paris. He looked up at the subway map and announced that at some point during their stage, their stay he may be able to take her to the Louvre, which he pronounced as having two distinct syllables. Louvre. I'm hardly qualified to belittle anyone else's pronunciation, but he was setting himself up by acting like such an expert. Yeah, he said, letting out a breath. I thought we might head over there some day this week and do some nosying around. It's not for everyone, but something tells me you might like it. People are often frightened of Parisians, but an American in Paris will find no harsher critic than another American. France isn't even my country, and but there I was, deciding that these people needed to be sent back home, preferably in chains. In disliking them, I was forced to recognise my own pretension, and that made me hate them even more. The train took a curve, and when I moved my hand farther up the pole, the man turned to the woman, saying, Carol, hey Carol, watch out, that guy's going after your wallet. What? Your wallet, Martin said. That joker's trying to steal your wallet. Move your pocketbook to the front where he can't get at it. She froze and then he repeated himself, barking. The front. Move your pocketbook around to the front. Do it now. The guy's a pickpocket. The woman named Carol grabbed for the strap on her shoulder and moved her pocketbook so it now rested on her stomach. Wow, she said. I sure didn't see that coming. Well, you've never been to Paris before, but let that be a lesson to you. Martin glared at me, his eyes narrowed to the slits. This city is full of stink-bots, like our little friend here. Let your guard down and they'll take you for everything you've got. Now I was a stink-pot and a thief. It occurred to me to say something, but I thought it might be better to wait and see what he came up with next. Another few minutes and he might have decided I was a crack dealer on a w or a white slaver. Besides, if I had said something at this point, he probably would have apologised, and I wasn't interested in that. His embarrassment would have pleased me, but once he recovered, there would be that awkward period that sometimes culminates in a handshake. I didn't want to touch these people's hands or see any 
or see things from their point of view. I just wanted to continue hating them. So I kept my mouth shut and stared off into space. The train stopped at the next station. Passengers got off and Carol and Martin moved to occupy two folding seats located beside the door. I thought they might ease on to another topic, but Martin was on a roll now and there was no stopping him. It was some shithead like him that stole my wallet on my last trip to Paris, he said, nodding his head in my direction. He got me on the subway, came up from behind and I never felt the thing. Cash, credit cards, driver's license, poof, all gone, all, all of it gone just like that. I pictured a scoreboard reading Marty Zero Stinkpots 1 and clenched my fist in support of the home team. What you've got to understand is that these creeps are practice professionals, he said. I mean, they've really got it down to an art, if you can call that an art form. I wouldn't call it an art form, Carol said. Art is beautiful, but taking people's wallets, that stinks in my opinion. You've got that right, Martin said. The thing is, is that these jokers usually work in pairs. He squinted toward the opposite end of the train. Odds are that he's probably got a partner somewhere on the subway car. You think so? I know so, he said. They, us they usually time it so that one of them clips your wallet just as the train pulls into the station. The other guy's job is to run is to run interference and trip you up once you catch wind of what's going on. Then the train stops, the doors open, and they disappear into the crowd. If Stinky there had gotten his way, he'd probably be halfway up to Timbuktu by now. I mean, make no mistake, these guys are fast. I'm not the sort of person normally mistaken for being fast and well-coordinated, and because of this I found Martin's assumption to be oddly flattering. Stealing wallets was nothing to be proud of, but I like being thought of as a cunning and professional. I'd been up until 4am the night before reading a book about recluse spiders, but to him the circles beneath my eyes likely reflected a long evening spent snatching flies out of the air, or whatever it is that pickpockets do for practice. The meatball, he said. Look at him, just standing there waiting for his next victim. If I had my way, he'd be picking pockets with his teeth. An eye for an eye, that's what I say. Someone ought to chop that guy's hands off and feed him to the dogs. Oh, I thought. But first you'll have to catch me. It just gets my goat, he said. I mean, where's a polichione when you need one? <laughs> where's a polichione when you need one? Polichione. Where did he think he was? I was trying to imagine Martin's conversation with a French policeman and pictured him waving his arms around shouting, That man tried to pick on my friend's pocketani. I, I, I wanted very much to hear such a conversation and decided I would take the wallet from Hugh's back pocket as we left the train. Martin would watch me steal from a supposed stranger and most likely would intercede. He put me in a headlock or yell for help, and when a crowd gathered, I'd say, What's the problem? Is it against the law to borrow money from my boyfriend? If the police came, Hugh would explain the situation in his perfect French, while I'd toss in a few of my most polished phrases. That guy's crazy, I'd say, pointing at Martin. I think he's drunk. Look at how his face is swollen. I was practising these lines to myself when Hugh came up from behind and tapped me on the shoulder, signalling that the next stop was ours. There you go, Martin said. That's him. That's the partner. Didn't I tell you he was around here somewhere? They always work in pairs. It's the oldest trick in the book. Hugh had been reading the paper and had no idea what had been going on. It was too late now to pretend to pick his pocket, and I was stuck without a, a decent backup plan. As we pulled into the station, I recalled an afternoon ten years earlier. I'd been riding, riding to Chicago with my sister Amy, who was getting off three or four stops ahead of me. The doors opened, and as she stepped out of the crowded car, she turned around to yell, So long, David. Good luck beating that rape charge. Everyone on board had turned to stare at me. Some seemed curious, some seemed frightened, but the overwhelming majority appeared to hate me with a passion. 
that I had never even before encountered. That's my sister, I'd say. She likes to joke around. I laughed and smiled, but it did no good. Every gesture made me appear more guilty, and I wound up getting off at the next stop rather than continue, continuing riding alongside people who thought of me as a rapist. I wanted to say something good to Martin, but I can't think as fast as Amy. In the end, this man would go home warning his friends to watch out for pickpockets in Paris. He'd be the same old Martin, but at least for a few seconds, I still had the opportunity to be someone different. The dangerous me noticed how Martin tightened his fists when the train pulled to a stop. Carol held her pocketbook closer to her chest and sucked in her breath as Hugh and I stepped out, no longer finicky little boyfriends on their overseas experiment. The rogues' accomplices halfway to Timbuktu.